At KUT, bringing you rigorous fact-based reporting is the highest priority. Even during uncertain times, KUT exists to serve the greater Central Texas community, and your support is what keeps this service strong. Give today at KUT.org. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we get started, and if you haven't ever heard a Secret Ingredient podcast, or if you haven't been to one where we have recorded it live, Raj, Tom, and I host the Secret Ingredient around one main idea. So we'll get to that in a little bit. We'll do an intro for the show. So with no further ado, I'll introduce the hosts, and then Tom is going to do an introduction for the Secret Ingredient. So from the LBJ School of Public Affairs, we have writer and activist, author of The Value of Nothing and Stuffed and Starved, and just a fantastic person who just recently won a James Beard Award in Leadership. Congratulations. Raj Patel. Thank you. And we also have with us the award-winning writer at Mother Jones Magazine, a foodie and a former server here in Austin with Hoover Alexander, Tom Philpott. Thank you, sir. I'm Rebecca McEnroy with KUT, and with no further ado, Tom's going to introduce the show. So the secret ingredient is usually some concept or some food stuff, but the secret ingredient of this show is um, going to be sweet generous. It's going to be a one of its kind because Hoover is one of a kind. And so the secret ingredient for this episode is Hoover Alexander. Because <clears throat> uh, I don't think even as well wow. known as he is in Austin, people understand the sort of uh, depth and breadth and importance of his career. And I also want to say that this is a very special episode for me. This is a very personal episode because I first met Hoover um, in the very, very depths of the 80s. I think it was actually 1981. Sounds about right, yeah. And I was 15 years old, and I had just been hired as a dishwasher at the Nighthawk Steakhouse. There were a few Nighthawk Steakhouses at this time. This was the one at 290 and 35. And, um, and, you know, rather quickly, I worked myself up from the dish room and became a busboy, and I would wear my red jacket and black trousers and, and black bow tie. And I was, you know, an, a, a pretty earnest kid. And I don't know, I, I think every restaurant, every sort of, you know, large restaurant like that is like a Russian novel. It is full of personalities and dramas and uh, you sort of like wade into it and, and just see and sort of get sucked into it. And one of the big characters at that time was Hoover. Hoover was the head waiter. And, um, and I remember I was, um, and you know, everyone respected him, everyone loved him. He was always sort of like the life of the party, you know, during the shifts and after the shifts. And my main memory that I take away from Hoover at that time was one time I was busing tables, it was a Saturday night, it was busy. And the, the, the owner, the, the late owner's widow came in. The owner was the kind of legendary figure, Harry Aiken, a very important figure in Austin politics. Maybe we'll talk a bit about him later. And his widow had taken over the, the company. Mrs. Aiken is how we knew her. 
And she came in, and when, when, when she would come in, the whole restaurant would freak out. There would be this murmur going through, that Mrs. Aiken is here, Mrs. Aiken is here. And so it's going on, and everyone's kind of stiffening up and freaking out and sort of you know, making sure their tie is fully, uh, fully tightened. And you know, everyone's like getting busy because Mrs. Aiken is there. And I was there in the wait station when word came in that Mrs. Aiken was there, and Hoover was in the wait station. And someone informed him of that, and Hoover said, and I quote, what am I supposed to do, shine my shoes? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as a, a kind of anti-establishment 15-year-old, I immediately realized uh, how, how cool Hoover was. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he, he moved on, you know, not long after that and launched his career in other ways. But we, all, you know, always, I feel like I always knew what you were up to because we had a, friends in common still at the restaurant. So we sort of kept up with each other after that for years. And, and clearly, Hoover has gone on to do many things in the restaurant business. Um, and as everyone here probably knows, he runs Hoover's Restaurant on Main Road. And maybe I want to start the conversation with talking about, so you started Hoover's 18 years ago. 18 years ago, yeah, 1998. And so, you know, obviously, I think when we think about Austin and its dividing lines and it's sort of the traditional racial dividing line, what we think about is IH 35, that the west side is on one side of it and the east side is, is on the other. And until very recently, that was sort of the racial dividing line of Austin. But really, Maynard Road was also a kind of mini dividing line. And so, Hoover, I wonder if you could talk us through what Maynard Road Talk us through the evolution of Maynard Road up until you started Hoover's, and we can go on from there. Maynard Road was a dividing line for me. I, I also grew up on the east side, and I remember that um, there was black land to the south and Cherrywood neighborhood to the north, and it was a dividing line racially mostly, but also class-wise. Uh, I was telling Tom uh, that, uh, and I affectionately call him Tommy, by the way, that's, that's so how I, I was known are, are, back in the day. Are you cool with that? Okay. I'm cool with that. Um, Halloween, because uh, I, I grew up on the 12th Street Corridor, so we crossed Maynard Road. That was the dividing line for the good candy, you know, the better neighborhood, the whole bit. And I remember one of the guys, kids I grew up with, when he first moved across Maynard Road, uh, it, was, uh, it was like, wow, you know, they've made it. Also, uh, other memories of businesses on the corridor in the you know six, late 60s, early 70s uh, when I was a kid. One was right across the street from where, I don't know if you knew that, from where the restaurant's at, uh, in the, the parking lot where our food trailer's at. Uh, my uh, uncle Dave Lofton, he had what we called his uh, antique store, but it was you know, mostly used furniture. Uh, but you know, a few antiques you know, scattered about, but I give a nod and, and I often talk about the shoulders I stand on because it was about, you know, black entrepreneurship and my Uncle Dave's, you know, antique used furniture store right on Maynard Road. And it happened to be on that south side of Maynard Road, by the way, and that, that Blackland neighborhood. So I've got, you know, very cool memories as a kid, as a resident of, of East Austin, as well as coming there in uh, 98 coming full circle is almost like a spiritual circle because I looked around with my partner at a bunch of places uh, where we would open up the restaurant and fulfill the dream 
And it felt really special to say, wow, you know, I'm going to start this thing on the east side, you know, you know, the streets that I ran up and down on really nearby. And when we opened up uh, in 98, really the, the two anchored tenants that were there before me were uh, Eastside Cafe and Mi Madres. And obviously, those of you that know Maino Road, it's a great reflection of the changes that have taken place citywide. Uh, all the conversations we have now from traffic to gentrification, uh, all of that is a, this little microcosm that I've seen, I've witnessed, one, as a kid growing up, but from a business side, uh, more so, you know, since 98 at the restaurant. Wow. You know, I kind of want to go back even just a little bit further to talk about how you got into food and how you learned how to cook and what was, the, what was that process like? I tell people uh, my mother was my first teacher and uh, we did, i uh, fortunate to do a, a TV show a few years ago, and it, it stuck in my head when she told the host, she said, I didn't know the boy was paying attention. So it was never intended to be a career. Uh, I was a student here at UT, and I had scholarship money for books, tuition, fees, but I, my stepfather was one of the, we call chefs now, uh, but you know we considered him a cook at Nighthawk. Uh, he was my intro to the business. I wanted to earn some money to buy my first car, have a little spending money. And so uh, my first job was as a dishwasher and as a busboy. And in hindsight, Nighthawk became my parallel training. I literally learned the job, all the jobs from the back of the house, events, which Tommy said, to wedding tables, bartending, managing, and the whole bit. So the guys that had been cooking for 30 and 40 years, you know, they were my teachers, my mentors that, that and I, I was just bored and always had a thirst for knowledge, so I wanted to learn and would watch them like I did with bartending and everything else. And, and basically, just, I'm in this incredible, who would have thunk it, position to bring all the, uh, the, the, the family roots, literally, in some cases, from, you know, farm to table that is now like this, you know, hip phrase now, but I'm the first generation born in the city. My parents, they came from rural central Texas. So I've got those early memories of going to the farm east of Austin, a little community called Utley, Texas, and picking peas and melons and, and uh, mother bringing back fresh churned butter and making these wonderful things with. And, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're sucking, you know, peas and, and all that in the living room back here. So I've got all those early food memories, but never knew that it, I was going to end up being like baptized all the way into it until years later. Yeah. And t talk a little bit about one thing, um, what it meant to you to work in a kitchen and to work at a restaurant. Like what was the idea of that when you started? And also what was the evolution of the change of the farm to table process of living and cooking in your home and then also with the restaurants? One one of the things, and you know, let's frame my beginning of the restaurant business in the early '70s, right? So, growing up, you know, uh, my family and my peers in the black community, you know, restaurant business, maid service, were subservient uh, occupations that people ran ran away from. And because other opportunities opened up. So my contemporaries, my peers had opportunities to intern at the Capitol and at Pitney Bowes and IBM, et cetera. 
And so the kitchen was not this glorified thing that people now want to do because there weren't TV shows and all these things. It was like hard labor. And these guys that, and I always give a nod to one man in particular, Mr. Leon. I've got a picture of him with my father. His second job was cooking at one of the fraternity sorority houses here. So all these guys would work two jobs at the country clubs, you know, work long hours to sustain a, a middle class life. So. In fact, when I was hired as a college kid, they thought they'd run me off, that I, it would be too hard of work for me to stick around. And I had something to prove, even, you know, washing dishes, getting my hands, you know, dirty and wet and the whole bit. So it wasn't anything that was really attractive as far as a career early on. But the landscape, interestingly, and I, I look back on that, uh, it pretty much most kitchens were populated by old black men. So the guys at Nighthawk were had been doing that for 30, 40 years, you know, when I came in as a little punk, dishwasher, busboy. And ironically, over the years, you know, they've been replaced predominantly by, you know, by first generation, you know, Hispanic, uh, Latin, Latinos that are, are moving here, first generation. And I have such a love and passion. I see the connection between those old black men, you know, 40 years ago, and these new immigrants that are doing that heavy labor and loving it and the camaraderie that we have together is pretty intense. And then there's the other side of the kitchen and food scene and back where there's a lot of, uh, you know, young folk that are really enamored by the, the appeal of the, the really cool hip things that are pretty much have defined who the world now knows Austin as, right? All the the hip, cool places, the new things that I do not begrudge, by the way. Uh, but so so I'm kind of like breaking the old school, trying to take that torch forward and, and those memories of all those folks, including Mr. Leon, and just doing that straightforward cooking, nothing fancy, you know, that comfort food, putting in that love and that labor. So it, I bridge the Nighthawk experience with really the early food experiences are being are doing things around community church uh doing school my second food group i tell folk is tex-mex because i went to uh, a catholic school for eight years in the body of lady guadalupe so i've got those early memories of going to their houses you know and eating their home cooking and we had a few cubano refugees and going you know to their houses and eating their home cooking so for me, you know, food is such a prism of bringing different folk together, and and uh, it's kind of what we try to represent. What I try to represent is that that love of bringing folk together. But you have this common denominator of, you know, uh, an emotional experience, not just feeding someone, but really pushing, you know, some emotional buttons. So I look back on, you know, all the gatherings of family, you know, from family reunions to going to the farm to things at church. And so it's it's like emotional connections, you know, makes you, you know, when you, you know, even as I talk about the peas and melons or the pies that Miss Leon would make, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing those, you know, the, the memory, the flavors, the taste, you know, the whole bit. Um, and, and so what we, I call what we do Texas cooking because uh, it's all the things that represent, you know, what I grew up eating and loving from Tex-Mex, later years, the East Texas Cajun Creole, there's the smoke, smoke culture, and just try to, you know, stir that all together at the restaurant. Hoover, I'm 
so pleased that you've got that perspective that stretches back to, frankly, when Tom had hair. Uh, <laughs> and, and I had an afro. And I'm also really grateful for your very nuanced understanding of gentrification, that it's not all bad, that there may be some benefits to it. Um, and when you're describing that, and when Tom's describing his experience of you know making the tie tighter so that uh, the, the the wife, the widow of the, the the owner can can feel comfortable. In all of those images, what I'm missing is women, uh, mm. other than your mother, uh, who who features in the story story early on. I, yeah. I wonder whether there's a story, a parallel story of gentrification, and the entry of women into the food industry in Austin that you can tell. What one that helps us understand gentrification a little differently to the way that we're we're normally used to understanding it in the food business. My friend that you guys are familiar with, Tony Tipton Martin, has done a wonderful, uh, <laughs> wonderful thing with the uh, mama stage code, right? On stage, we interviewed her. Yeah. And uh, and really, the the one parallel is uh, giving a face and respect and nod to the invisible folk that really influence what we know from soul food to southern food, and and you know, and then all the conversations about who has ownership and who really influenced it. Was it the black you know slave person or black servant in later years? And um, Real interesting that so even at Nighthawk, by the way, I, I broke this this the the uh, the the barrier of servers. So uh, their whole model was women only as waitresses, believe it or not. And in fact, uh, I got a second job because I'd done everything but wait tables because they wouldn't let me. So I went to work at another company, stayed at Nighthawk, and and after I was there a year. The short story of it is the manager said, hey, do you want you, we're expanding the restaurant, why don't you come back and wait tables there, which I did. So I was the first waiter, I broke the barrier. But, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations about uh, women, and you're right, because so my, my, my memories as a kid and growing up of women, black women, particularly in the kitchen, they were, um, they were not in, for the most part, doing the, the heavy lifting commercial, you know, restaurant. They were the ones that attended, more, more domestic, right? So they had the combination of being the cook and maids and, you know, white uh, families, you know, and that's, you know, a pretty well-known phenomenon, how they influenced the food and the raising of kids and the whole bit. And then they would come back and nurture their own families, right? So my mother, she did a little bit of cooking early on, actually at, at a, a hospital now defunct called Holy Cross, but most of the, so there were very few women in the Nighthawk kitchen, even back in the 60s and 70s, I could, you know, name a couple of them, you know, they were, you know, like on one hand, I would need the whole, whole hand, so the heavy lifting were the black men, but at home, it, it was like, you know, the, the script got flipped and you would see the women that dominated. So I'm, my memory is my, at my mother, you know, doing her thing at the stove and I can barely reach the stove and watching and learning, you know, her, her love. But um, years later, I found out my grandfather's eulogy that uh, he was the best cook out of his six siblings. And uh, my mother was the best cook out of her uh, her six siblings, but three boys, three girls. So the boys did the hard farm work, picking cotton, and they were actually another parallel of, of uh, you know, uh, Latino immigrants. I found out 
not very long ago that my uncle would get plucked from school and then they would go to West Texas and pick cotton and all that, right? Does that sound familiar? They were the migrant farmers back then. So the women were left to do, you know, the cooking. So my memories of my father's family, they were the ranchers. He was the black cowboy, you know, guy, you know, so they, he would, he would hunt, he would, uh, and they would, you know, butcher the, the animals. Uh, and, um, and but and the women would take so they would do the the hunting the dressing and the women would do the the finishing product at home, so a real kind of interesting dividing line of what black women did on the home front and then what the men were doing because again of limited uh, opportunities you know. I wonder, I wonder if we could go back. I mean, I think one way to to look at the topic of gentrification and how things have changed in Austin is to compare the situation in Nighthawk around the time that I got there, where it was possible to make a, a middle-class living as a cook and live in the neighborhood of, of, of the steakhouse. Um, and in fact, when I got to Nighthawk in 80 or 81, there, was a, that there were seven restaurants, right? Yep. They were in San Antonio and... Two in San Antonio, one in Houston. And one in Houston. Yeah, four here. And we had a credit union, we had profit sharing, and I actually got on healthcare at the Nighthawk at, at a certain point. Yep, yep. And, um, and a lot of the cooks lived in the neighborhood of the Nighthawk, sort of northeast Austin, and had nice homes. And then I sort of watched all of that sort of fall apart um, over the course of the 80s, and then compare that to, to now, where I think it's probably difficult to even have cooks who live in Austin because of, I wonder if you can just talk us through that whole thing. No, you're absolutely right. The, the, and then again, the legacy of Harry Aiken, the first to integrate the uh, restaurant scene as far as customers at the counter, the, the second, his second restaurant was on uh, Guadalupe and was 19th Street at the time, now MLK. And uh, he also integrated uh, the front of the house with the first to hire black managers and, and black and uh, 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 Hispanic uh, servers, Mayor Rodriguez, uh, that uh, we did a great oral history that we included her with. Mary Rod is still around, right? And she's still she's, at the... She's, she's retired from the Nighthawk finally, like about three years ago. And she she's was at the Frisco. At, she's at the Frisco. The last of the of the of the of the uh, of the Nighthawk Empire. We could talk. We could go we through could, character. We, character. We, got, we got stories. Yeah, but let's we got stories. Get off of Mary Rod for now. Right on. I, I'll ask you about her later. But, but um, yeah. so the but but so Harry afforded these folk a middle class existence, and you're right about that. So they lived near where reasonably near where they worked. You know, but particularly it was still the dividing line of I-35, you know, East Austin, Northeast Austin. But, uh, but yeah, there were all these benefits. It's so interesting how far, you know, we've come from, from there. I always felt like, as I, we were talking earlier, when I first started waiting tables and bartending, I thought I'd stolen something because the money I made per hour versus what the guys in the kitchen made. So there was still that bugged me, and as, as you and I, and I had forgotten the story about you want me to shine my sh shoes, which I love. But I remember, you know, as a as a you know a server there, you know, thinking this really is kind of like a neo plantation system in the sense of of the inequity of compensation. And so the again the the kitchen was predominantly you know 
thought exclusively really old black man and now you know except for the you know the, the really cool places that people really want to work at you know you look at you know predominantly you know uh you know now hispanic you know um uh men primarily and there still is that you know wage gap disparity in conversations we have Gentrification. There, you know, there are some ugly sides to it, and one is affordability, and no doubt about that. So, you know, uh, we have in my industry, we have not been able to keep up with other, you know, other sectors of the economy here in Austin. So, you get into, uh, you know, some of the uh, the high tech hubs, and you see that around the country, and you know we're left behind. And still, I'm wrestling with how we can address, you know, being able to pay these guys more. Because I look back on those Nighthawk days, and it's always bugged me. Still exists, you know, that inequity. Just the the the, the shade of the folk that are doing the work, you know, is a little different, but it still exists, and it's something that. Uh, and I won't get in ripped on that, but but back to your point, because we could talk you know, have a whole nother uh, show about that. Uh, but yeah, so Nighthawk had all those benefits and they could live close to where they worked. And now a lot of the folk in my business and work with me, they can't afford to live in Austin, man. I'm, I'm listening to, uh, you know, a cook saying, you know, my, my, my rent on Riverside Drive is $1,100 now. And, you know, and, and they've got to work two jobs or, you know, fourth them overtime with us. And and then the irony of it is they become part of the the other problem that we fuss a lot about, you know, traffic, because they can't afford. They got to go and live in Kyle and Buda and Smithville, and Flugerville and beyond, and they're part of the traffic problem driving in to work, you know, because they can't afford uh, the living, you know, can't afford living here, and and likewise, honestly, I don't know if. I'd be able to open up Hoover's now versus 18 years ago because of everything has gotten so expensive. You know, I live on the east side. I for sure couldn't afford to buy my house now. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, I, I realized within a seven year period, my tax, property tax had tripled, you know, when I calculated it. Uh, and those $18,000 houses literally just a few years ago are now selling for three and four hundred plus thousand. We're talking about seven, eight hundred square feet, no less, right? It's on incredible, the east side. yeah. So that is the downside as far as being able to live on the east side or in Austin or to have a business. So we, we, may, we have a lot of diversity in the restaurant business now, which I love, you know, all the, the cool new places and folk bring in great ideas. The downside are the mom and pop places, you know, that, you know, perhaps I may represent that absolutely can't afford to stay in business or to start a business for a whole lot of reasons uh, from the, the, the overhead of, of, you know, or, you know, of, of, you know, of operations to just paying the labor. I'm struggling now uh, not having enough people that really want to do what we do. Uh, to keep, you know, the love and the torch going as far as, you know, cooking, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're not as appealing as, uh, you know, as we once were. We're not the shiny new place, the shiny new concept. So, you know, that's part of the struggles of a small business and also, of, you know, and perhaps the lack of diversity of, you know, some of the, the folk that, that I try to encourage. Like, you know, you could do this too. You can be an entrepreneur, you know you are part of the American dream. And I think that's real important. 
and it does bother me because civil rights for me, I feel like I'm in a sweet spot. I'm riding and standing on the shoulders of those that literally died and 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 you know and and and, and you know you know lost blood and sweat to give us equal opportunities to live where we want, eat where we want, uh, have businesses. So I really try to carry that torch of entrepreneurship as I look back on. Uh, during segregation, there was a lot of entrepreneurship in the black community because folk had to. I try to encourage people now to be entrepreneurs because they want to and try to change that whole mindset with what we do. So, yeah, I serve food, but I really, you know, try to carry that torch to represent hopes and dreams and, and at the same time not get stuck in the mirror looking about wh how it was, you know, and get lost and have a wreck going forward, right? But I want to respect and, rep you know, and appreciate, you know, what those before me did and then try to, you know, map my way forward and be an example to kind of take that torch forward, you know, and just keep those dreams and hopes and possibilities alive by the prism of food and food business. What do you think, to you, what is an entrepreneur? What is the role of an entrepreneur? And what, like, how do you develop into that? Is it possible for someone to develop into the role of an entrepreneur now in the food industry in Austin? I've heard the debates over the years, entrepreneur and, and restaurant entrepreneur uh, in particularly. Now it's, it's more appealing, right, because there's the food shows and, you know, and, and Austin has become such an incredible place that, that, that you know, we, we've been known for creativity for years, which I love being a native Austinite. I don't know if I mentioned that. So in the early, you know, 60s uh, or late 60s, early 70s, we were known cre creatively for high tech, the beginnings of IBM, et cetera, a few other places, Tricor, but also music. And now, you know, that's translated and transitioned, transferred to the food creativity, which I love. And, uh, and, and a lot of the brick and mortar folk like me were hating on the, the food truck phenomenon. But I understand it, man, because you can't afford brick and mortar. You know what I mean? That's what I meant. So, I mean, that's like to lower the threshold, the barrier of entry for entrepreneurship. So, for me, I love what I see folk doing and being creative, you know, because they're bringing some really cool things and excites me to see the creativity, you know, at work. And, but, but at the same time, you know, it, you know, there's, you know, there is that, you know, that downside of, you know, that threshold to, you know, become an entrepreneur. It's really tough. And I am, uh, uh, I got talked into being the president of the restaurant association, by the way. So uh, one, I know, yeah, I hadn't, I didn't have enough to do. <laughs> but you know, one of the things we want, we we're doing, is trying to have conversations and relationships, we, ongoing. I'm carrying that towards forward, but with you know, with government entities, right? Because decisions that are un, you know, unintended consequences from things that make. Austin unaffordable and barriers for entry for entrepreneurship. Uh, I very much believe, and I've said that we entrepreneurs, small business people, are in fact an in, uh, uh, endangered species. It's really tough, and there's all the stories about and the things that get in the way to one, just to get in business, to get started, and two, to stay in business. I mean, 
So you have to be fearless, and either you have to be a little crazy, or you for sure will be crazy after you're done. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which comes first to answer your question, but crazy is part of the secret ingredient, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> this is good. We haven't done one on that yet, so okay. that's good. Um, but you know, like a lot of a lot of what the stories that you're talking about, and a lot of the experiences that you have had, even just being a connoisseur, you know, in a kitchen at a very young age and, and tasting things and being part of the development of different recipes and also being part of this creative food um, entity, you know, that is the restaurant experience. And I think that there, there are a few things that are lost when you have people who are living far away from the places that they're working, especially when they're working in the restaurant industry. I used to work at a bar, this little bar in Iowa City called The Mill, and I lived right down the street from the mill. Thank God in heaven above, because when we closed at night, we would all drink until four o'clock in the morning and then walk I remember home. those days. So that never was, happened at Nighthawk. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the sex week days after Nighthawk, oh, but yeah. yeah. But what you gain from that, and not just drinking, but like what you gain from that proximity is being able to you know, live in this environment, create, become the whole full person who you are without that commute you know, that, that takes you away from all of those experiences that you can't really put a price tag on and you can't quantify how valuable it is to have those connections with the people that you're working with in the food industry and developing in more restaurants and things yeah. like that. So maybe, you know, talk about some of those things that you see that are lost when you don't have people who are living within the walking proximity or within, you know, relatively close range to the restaurants they're working at. Well, you're right. You know, as you spoke, I realized that commute has replaced community. And and, 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 very tr and that is so true. So uh, a lot of, uh, you know, and, and God, you, you it's difficult to even think about going across town to, you know, to, to create community. You know, one of the, I guess, you know, cool things about social media, people are creating community in a, you know, in that artificial way, you know. But there is something to be said for your ride to be able to uh, not have to worry about driving, you know, 30 minutes if you want to have drinks with your coworkers and all that. Because one of the things is Tommy and I were talking about and reminiscing about Nighthawk. You know, we had tough days. It's a tough business. It always has been. It was then. It is now. But, you know, I live, was very fortunate to live, you know, less than really five minutes away or ten minutes away, as did a lot of the other guys. So we could get together, man. And even when I was a waiter, partly out of guilt with all this pocket full of money, I'd go to the store and, you know, buy a case of, back then it was six, 16 ounce Slits Malt Liquor Bull for the boys in the kitchen. And, you know, we would, you know, we would, you know, have our little after party, you know, and, and, and so we, we, we'd work hard, we'd play hard and not have far to go. And, and I know it sounds kind of, but, but, I, but it sounds familiar to what you said, you know, it did create that sense of community that kind of kept you going through those real hard, difficult times, you know, when, when, when everything hits the fan, as it were, you know. And there's one, one more thing, because I know I have other people who need to ask questions and desperately want to, but there's something about that as you were talking which made me think of a couple other shows we've done. We did a show with Sydney Mintz on sugar and slavery in the Caribbean, and we also did a show on the history of cotton production. And what rang true for both of those was that the way that slavery worked was you had people who were displaced from their homes, and they didn't really have anywhere to go 
you know, back to a community to gain some type of like empowerment and camaraderie through their people. And so they were enslaved easier on these plantations. And the one thing, I mean, I know that, that it's not an equal equivalence at all, but the one thing that reminds me of is like, there is power in being able to share the work experience with one another when it's really difficult and that you have a space to talk about equality and wage inequality and how you can unify and empower one another within that experience. And when you don't have that type of camaraderie, you don't have that environment where it's possible to get together to talk about raising wages or getting benefits or all of those things that come with the social element of your work environment you know yeah it's it's uh boy you know as y'all heard me say earlier uh you know and i really don't think in terms of you know black and white thinking more shades of gray and and i hear you and i so see how complicated the solutions are on so many levels, and, and you're so right about that. You know, how do you create the community? But, you know, one thing also, as I thought about, and this isn't necessarily good, but it's not good, actually. The the old black cooks at Nighthawk back in the day, they were satisfied, or, or you know, easier satisfied, I guess, because they, they, again, because they had less choices, so they had kind of resigned themselves, as I'm thinking, you know, thinking what you're saying to, you know, this is my, and, and, and you hear about even, uh, you hear about, you know, just globally, people that are just in incredible situations, and, and, and you look at the black experience, right, and where, like, you know, like song and music came out of misery, uh, and, and you look at how community again and how you can you can just transcend your immediate misery by community by being together and so you know the institution of church obviously was real strong in the you know black community that brought folk together uh where they could commiserate and even part of the civil rights movement the same thing is where people coalesce and coagulate to come together and create community and shared ideas and you know strength and unity and all that and you know, we've definitely become scattered, not only as black people, but I think as, you know, Americans. And then that troubles me. And then as I think about how the civil rights movement was all about trying to bring folk together and the Nighthawk experience was about bringing folk together. And I'm very troubled now how we've so divided ourselves now um, on racial lines, um, you know, attitudes about police, about black, about white, about Democrats, about Republicans. We have forgotten the skill of listening to each other. And so one of the things in my Pollyanna-ish part of my brain is to try to figure out what can I do with the platform I have called a restaurant called Food uh, to maybe how can we somehow bring, you know, folk back together and create that sense of community can we when when i did a couple of food trailers on 12th street i, I started doing a veggie centric one with the idea and i did open up a paleo one barbecue and 
and but for me it was like let's let's get the vegetarians and the meat eaters together break bread across the table and let let you know peace break out you know what I mean <laughs> but but it really was about and uh, you know it was a short period of time but I felt really good about it because it was community involvement so part of the deal was to get folk together to walk the neighborhood on the east side to see if we could get folk to come together and do whatever yoga outside or do events outside. We did a few music things and we're able to go to the adult learning center and contract them to do benches for us and, and make them a part of the deal. And you know, we're able to do, get with an after school uh, program uh, and have the kids come out and you know name and identify you know the the, the things we're growing from the garden, and it really was a sense of intergenerational, interracial uh, camaraderie and a sense of community. So it gave me a short, brief moment of of believing you know that is still possible of creating that community and how the more we can and and you know uh, we talked about a. a Tommy and I talked about my friend from Nighthawk of 38 years and the metaphor of boxes that don't look alike but were so much more alike over the years. He was this tall, lanky, white kid that was awkward that, you know, back in the day that, you know, that we'd go to Bartholomew Park on the east side and, you know, I'd, I'd play him in basketball and we'd have fun and he's eight years younger than me and he was into the heavy metal and I was into the cool R&B thing, you know. But we ended up being best friends over the years. He ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America. He was a classically trained chef. Ended up being uh, executive chef for the 66th Academy Awards. So from Nighthawk and, you know, to Academy Award executive chef, he was the one that preceded Wolfgang Puck, for those of you that are into the Academy Awards. But he is my inspiration going forward because, uh, it you know reminded me of what's possible about us being exploring how much more alike we are than how different we are, and so if I can take the memories of him and Nighthawk and what I'm trying to do now and go forward, so be able to look back in the rearview mirror and appreciate, but but kind of help draw the roadmap of creating that community that you spoke of is really missing in our lives now on so many levels. So I, I probably did everything but answer your question. <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. I don't even know if I asked one. <laughs> um, well, I, I know that we're going to be throwing it over to the audience soon. Right. Um, Look forward to that. But um, you'll have to suffer a question from me first, though, uh, which is about the Restaurant Association. Um, so is that linked to the National Restaurant Association? It is. So oh, it's just Jesus, like no. the, it's the trunk of National than the Texas Restaurant Association, and we're the greater austin restaurant associates were a sub chapter of one and the other and the other so the, the reason i ask and the reason i said sweet jesus no is because um the i mean the, so, so there's a line that that you've crossed in then from from working uh, and and you know, being involved in the community that, that gets a drink after hours and being a boss and, and i wonder if you can talk about that difference because you know the, the nra is the National Restaurant Association is, other people say, it, it's, that it's, other the, NRA. it's the other NRA. What? What? Right, it's, right, right. Uh, so it, it's, it is the other NRA. And, right. and for, for a lot of workers in, uh, in a lot of restaurant workers now, they're the enemy. Um, and so uh, I, it, it, this is a little awkward. Um, but but no, I, 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 I'm wondering how, how you've made that transition and, and what it is that you, you look back in the mirror and see of yourself while you're positioned on the side of the NRA. So one of the things that I 
uh, I, I have a hard time uh, considering myself boss as opposed to coworkers. You know what I mean? And uh, I, um, because I have a lot of empathy, because everything that anyone does in a restaurant, I've done and still have to do. Right? That's why I spoke about the trouble inequity, the disparity of front and back of the house. And I understand the ivory tower theoretical stuff of like 15 an hour minimum wage and all that. I mean, completely get that. And the thing is, you know, the real world is, and, the, and what I would ask those that would pose that specific question is, what are you willing to pay for that hamburger? Because, you know, there's no magic pot of money. Like, I'm not wealthy. I've got no retirement, you know. Uh, for most of the years that we've been in business, I made sure uh, my cooks with getting overtime with, with, with making more money than I because for me it's like really about being more of a caretaker than boss uh, and that's exactly my point about creating enemies earlier you know Democrats Republicans you know if if I were to identify as one we've come so tribal you know we're the Crips and the Bloods you know and, and all of our thinking it bothers me so you know it's like this line between employer employee as opposed to you know how can we you know find a win-win solution so it, it it's it's complicated but is, do you see a win-win solution I mean in, in, in the other question I wanted to ask was in gentrification is there a win-win solution is there a way that, that communities can retake control but um, we could frame it also in terms of workers and the, the National Restaurant Association. I mean, at some level, the NRA has been pushing and, and, and persisting in keeping uh, workers' wages down, and you were one of those workers. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, right. that, so in that way that you've, you're also seeing the benefits of gentrification, you're also, now that you're an employer, um, I mean, you can see the other side. I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who's crossed these lines in different ways, whether you see win-win solutions here. Well, you know, uh, again, a big gray thinker, shades of gray versus black or white. Uh, I do... Uh, again, that Pollyanna, Pollyanna voice, you know, part of it's like, what is the way out? If we want to talk about gentrification, we want to talk about uh, wage equity. Um, gentrification to start with that. Man, I don't know how to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, so many people, so, you know, a lot of the elders still in the, in the East Side community that are on fixed incomes, you know they could. You know their their taxes are more than what their mortgage used to be, right? Um, some of it. So so there's all these elements of of why folk have left East Side. Some was voluntarily, of course, and, and there's all the history of how you know it was like legalized segregation the whole bit. A lot of my my contemporaries chose to leave because they were again in search of. Uh, equal opportunities or better opportunities. So, you know, my family, you know, my aunts and uncles, there was that migration you hear about from uh, Texas to LA in my case, in my family's case. And, you know, so my aunt could work for Hughes Aircraft in the 60s or 50s or whatever. Uh, and so likewise, the parallel of folk leaving the east side to go to Round Rock to work at IBM, work at Dell Computer in later years, IBM in earlier years. And, and now there's no way back home, uh, you know, because it's not affordable now. And that, and that does cross racial lines, you know, to, to say the least. You know, just poor working folk, regardless of color, again, they can't afford to live in Austin. And I had friends that, that uh, moved to San Francisco 30, 40 years ago, and, and I always wondered would Austin ever become 
San Francisco, like where, you know, the the workers couldn't afford to live in the city. And lo and behold, here we are, you know. I don't know the way out for that. One of the things that, uh, you know, talk about the NRA and being the boss that I've spoken to, uh, a, a thing that I did with Tony uh, with Food Waste Texas and also some things with city council uh, as far as the wage inequity. There's something I'm going to have to do and I've been putting off, but I, I want to do a hybrid. You've heard, um, some of you I'm sure have heard of the concept of and not paying a server like 213 plus tips, so you pay them, you know, in some cases 10 or $15 an hour, and it's a no-tip, you know, model. Again, I'm not a black-and-white thinker, so my thoughts are to try to figure out how to have a hybrid of that, so maybe split the difference where some of that price is embedded in the menu, and it's still not equal pay for unequal performance, you know, because I believe in those that, because I was a good waiter back in the day, I think, and and my, my, my performance, you know, I got compensated by those that, that weren't, you know, didn't have their hustle on or whatever. So, but but that price will reflect into many prices is my point, right? So the question is, and I wrestle with, so one to, to talk to, which I have to staff about, hey, I'm thinking about doing this where I'll pay you this amount of money. And then if you're tipped maybe half of that, this is kind of what that, compensation looks like but how does the you know how does that look to the general public like oh your meatloaf is now three dollars more an hour because of you know you're trying to do this pay equity thing so my deal is I want to walk the walk and and not just you know I mean I, I could have an intellectual conversation ivory tower with folk you know I'm, I'm I'm good with that but I want to transcend that to the real world and I said that to a, a you know, some of the city council members in a, we t uh, uh, one of the subcommittees they do now, it's like I explained that I was looking at doing that and have a real world example of how well will that be received in the marketplace. So a lot of it, you know, the argument back from NRA and focus, like it is market driven, what will the market bear? Uh, again, because there's not like, I mean, folk in my business, you see restaurants come and go margins are razor thin if you're doing everything well. And I'm generalizing some concepts with better food costs, et cetera, et cetera. But in the real world, I'm struggling, you know, to stay open and pay the bills, even as we speak after 18 years, by the way. So, you know, I am going to make a calculated move in that direction because I do want to be an example and not just a theoretician you know, for city council members, for NRA folk. Uh, and there are some bad guys in my business, like in any business, with, with ill intentions. They really want to beat down and keep folk down, and I'm absolutely not, and, and, I, and I hear you on that. So allow me an opportunity to be a real-world example, and let's see how this experiment turns out. Because, again, if you can show people there's a better way versus make them, and I've, I've said that the city council and other folk, I come from the carrot, not the stick, uh, school of trying to incentivize and, and you know and, and not just beat people over and beat them over the head and make them so they just undermine what you intend to do so if I can create a model that would influence positively and in a benign way address the inequity that's always bugged me uh, stay tuned and let's see if that may be the start of pushing the dominoes back you know and I think one thing that's 
really important to say in this conversation is that when we look back on the golden age of the Nighthawk, when you had cooks who could make a, a middle-class wage and live in the neighborhood where they, where they worked, that was the context of that was the post-war boom. And I got there at the very end of the post-war boom. But for that sort of 30-year period that we know from Thomas Piketty and from other, you know, other, other writers, that was a very unusual period in, in capitalism, let's say. Um, and we're, na we're now in a different era where um, state spending on programs like education is down. Um, the, 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 the safety net isn't what it was. Um, economic growth is way down. Some people argue that we're in this um, period of stagnation. Right. And we're, um, we're also in a period where, you know, what, what's happening in Austin with rents and gentrification and sort of the, the, these economic changes uh, moving through neighborhoods and transforming neighborhoods, it's happening all over the country in places that have these sort of dynamic high-tech economies. Exactly. And it is, yeah. it, is this, it is this big dilemma. And, you know, what does a business like Hoover, how does a business like Hoover's survive in this context uh, that is a lot more cutthroat than it was in the, in the context that, that Harry Aiken was was, was uh, confronting, because he started his restaurant in 1932. 1932. Um, yeah. As every Nighthawk employee can tell you, because it was on the placemat. December 24th, <laughs> 1932. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, he stuck it out, and then the post-war boom hit. And for the period when he was in, his, in, in high growth, it was this, this boom period, and he could do a lot of great things. And that is not the situation that you confronted when you started your place in 1998. Um, Things are more complicated and more expensive, you know, I mean, there's like a lot of, you know, governmental rules and regulations that makes things harder and more expensive for you to get in business, to stay in business. There were fewer restaurants, right? So we didn't have all the options. And now, of course, with media, you know, we know more, we want more, we appreciate more. I mean, you know, he was a steak and potatoes guy, and he did it well. And, you know, we were ingrained, you know, his, his motto was there's nothing accidental about quality. So he did a few things, but he did them well. And he was, he was a stickler for excellence, for perfection. So the residual uh, uh, respect that you, that you spoke of when everybody was saluting and saying of attention really came from him because those guys – revered him one he gave them opportunities but he raised that that standard you know he wanted everybody sharp he wanted them to bring their a game he would ex he would take nothing less and you know so but so the landscape is so different now it's it's more complicated there are more choices and so the consumer wants more demands more demands more diversity it's more expensive so all the little you know even even a cashless society now and i'm surprised how few restaurant, I hear so few restaurant operators speak to that, but it's real clear to me that, you know, the, the mega banks take 2% of your sales, I'll generalize, for credit cards. And now, uh, when, uh, you know, once upon a time, 90% of cash, tra of, you know, cash trans of, of food or sales transactions were cash, is flipped. 
it's 90 plus or 95 percent. And so even the profit margin has evaporated, gone to the mega banks that control the credit card processing entities. So it's all those little things. So if you're trying to make a few little digits of profit, well, 2% that you used to count on is going to this other you know, entity. So it, it, it is a lot, it's a lot, lot more complicated and a lot more expensive uh, and more cutthroat, as you said. So again, it's, there's a lot of uh, layers you know, of, of complications and why what is now is absolutely not in 1932 for sure, but not even 18 years ago in 1998 when we opened on Mainer Road. As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you.